I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Um, well, I wasn't going to mention this anniversary because... Uh Coming a bit tedious, and so much has happened since it, which is infinitely worse uh, than what happened on that particular day, horrible though it was. We've had a war in Iraq, which has seen the loss of over a million lives. A million people have died in Iraq since the war. Um, a war fully backed by this government in its different guises, first under Blair and now under Brown, and a war which, though little reported, is still going on. It has wrecked that country, it has wrecked its social infrastructure, it has sectarianized it, uh, so that groups are divided on the basis of religion in a way that they were not before in the entire history uh, of that country. And one shouldn't forget these things on this particular anniversary because what happened in the United States was used as a pretext to invade, punish, take over a country and execute its leader, something which people of the country themselves should do if they wish to. No foreign power has the right to do that. And then the nauseous hypocrisy when the Russians behave in the same way in Georgia. I mean, people have such short memories these days. So the Russians are attacked for invading Georgia. I don't like what they did any more than I like what the United States did in uh, Iraq or what NATO is doing in Afghanistan, another war which is linked to the subject of my talk. Now, uh, this book, which I've written on Pakistan, essentially concentrates on one aspect of the country. There's a lot more in it, I promise you, but the one crucial aspect is the country's relationship to the United States and its dependence on the United States and the partial dependence on the, of the United States on this country from the late 40s, early 50s uh, onwards. Uh, to summarize very briefly the country's track record, that when Pakistan was formed in 1947, carved out of India, the hope was of its, you know, only gifted leader, I would say, 
the founder of the country that it would be a secular state. It would be a state which would be a smaller version of India. Whether this was misguided is a matter for debate, but nonetheless that was the view and in a historic speech to the Constituent Assembly establishing the state, the, its founder Jinnah said we are now all equal citizens of a modern state. It doesn't matter whether you are a Muslim, a Hindu, a Christian, a Jain, whatever, we are all equal before the law. The model of that state was designed uh, to be a secular state, but of course embedded at the heart of the state from the beginning was a contradiction that how is it possible to create a secular state uh, when a, a state has been created in the name not of ethnicity but in the name of religion and the religion, the, the, those adherents of that religion, Islam, requiring a separate homeland in a large subcontinent. That was a contradiction and that contradiction uh, was never sorted out. Uh, and it finally erupted in 1771 when the country's first general election took place and a majority of the country's citizens lived in what was then East Pakistan, now known to most of you as Bangladesh. And they voted against the rule of the West Pakistani military bureaucratic elite and the military, backed by the United States, tried to crush them, uh, succeeded in massacring tens of thousands Ultimately, the Indians intervened and the Pakistani military was defeated and Bangladesh was born. The reason I point this out was that this was a death blow to Jinnah's dream. A total death blow because a state created as a separate homeland had now become a rump state. It was no longer the state envisaged for the Muslim majority areas of the Indian subcontinent because a large majority area did not want to be part of this state and seceded. So what was going to be the future of this state? That then became a live debate uh, in the country and a debate which goes on. I know of no other state about whom such a debate goes on with the partial exception of Israel. Uh, which is also a state with severe identity problems, but was created roughly at the same time, but in a very different framework, that this was more of a settler state, uh, not a state carved out of one region as such, but a state intended for, uh, uh, for the Jewish people uh, who had suffered in, in Europe and at the expense of people who were already living there. I make this analogy because some of Pakistan's generals, Ziaul Haq in particular, often used to say we are the equivalent of Israel in this region, which was of course a fantasy because the only wars they ever won were against their own people. Uh, and that too uh, in, a, in an extremely limited fashion. But that is what they used to do. Now, the question was, who were these people who created this state? Essentially, by and large, in both wings of the country, they belonged to political parties which had collaborated with the British Empire for nearly, or families, <clears throat> leading these parties which had collaborated with the British Empire for nearly 100 years maybe less, 50 in the cases of some, but they were all collaborationists with the imperial power that existed. 
This was the power that used to teach them and train them what to do. So once they became independent, they confronted problems. There was no one there to tell them what to do. What were they going to do? So they did two things. One, they developed, this is the political elite I'm talking about. I'm not talking about ordinary people, which is a very different story. But a political elite decided to carve its own identity in a purely negative fashion. We are not India. So what was Pakistan? Not India. We are not like them. Um, with the result that from the beginning this elite suffered from what I call a terrible political inferiority complex in relation to the Indians. Because the Indian leaders after independence were people who had fought. They had fought and struggled for their independence. Gandhi, Nehru, the entire Congress leadership had spent, you know, decades in prison. That had formed them. Uh, whereas the Pakistani equivalents uh, had decided on civil disobedience a few months before independence just to make sure that they had a few credentials. <clears throat> and this is essentially uh, what, what made them now, but with the British Empire now declining, the new elite First, they did depend very much on the British, and the British presence in Pakistan after partition was very strong, especially in the military. Uh, they kept it, they trained it, and to a limited, more limited extent in the civil service. Uh, but once the British pulled out, more or less, uh, the United States took over. But even before the British pulled out, some of the sharper political uh, leaders of the country decided that they should make appeals to the United States for help and they started doing it and I've in my book I can't read them all out to you but there are appeals from senior politicians to the United States pleading with them to take over the country more or less saying you don't know who we are we are all Muslims we are totally anti-communist we will do whatever you want we are not like those Indians uh, and we want you to come and uh, buy up our army and give us aid and do more whatever you want. I mean, there's an actual letter by a guy who's the country's foreign minister and prime minister delivered at the Turkey, U.S. Embassy in Turkey with the instruction it should be sent to the U.S. Secretary of State saying stuff like this except cruder because I haven't got it in front of me. I'm unconsciously improving it. <laughs> uh, but this was the sort of stuff and initially the United States was quite they didn't they were not that interested uh, for them the key power in that region was always India uh, till the Indians became very big as part of the non-aligned movement and the United States then fearful at that time that a wave of revolutionary movements from Southeast Asia were beginning to spread and the famous dominoes theory that if you lose one, you lose the next, if you lose the next, you lose the third, uh, that they had to create a network of security pacts in the region. And then they brought Pakistan into the fold. 
uh, in, from 1951 to 50, 51, 52, and then it, it, it has remained uh, the same. These pacts were the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, uh, you know, buttressed by two major Southeast Asian powers, Britain and the United States. Then there was the Central Treaty Organization, then there was the Baghdad Pact, uh, with the Iraqi monarchy centrally involved in it, and Pakistan, and Turkey. Uh, but then there was a revolution in Iraq, and the monarchy was overthrown, and Iraq pulled out of the pact. So they formed CENTO, Central Treaty Organization, which was essentially Pakistan, uh, Turkey, and of course Britain and the United States. They were now Central Asian powers. Um, and so it went on. It's just you know beyond satire. Uh, the way uh, all these things uh, were handled and dealt with, but it's in this period, in the 50s, that Pakistan was completely brought into the U.S. fold and, uh, you know, behaved, did what, what it was told to from that time onwards. The problem was now the following. You have a country. It has two big institutions bequeathed by the British, the military and the civil service. You have a weak political class. You have at the same time rising from below peasant movements, working class movements, trade unions, small radical parties, larger radical parties. And in 1954, you have an election in the eastern part of Pakistan which produces a united front government, quite radical, which says that one of the things it wants to do is withdraw Pakistan from all the security pacts. The country's first general election is planned for April 1959, and the United States, fearful that this election might produce a government which could withdraw Pakistan from the ambit of the West, decides to organize a military coup. And you have the first military dictatorship from 1958 to March 69. And at the very first meeting, when I interviewed for a previous book, one of the cabinet ministers uh, who was in that military government, he told me that the first thing we were told by the general Ayub, as far as you people are concerned, there is only one embassy in our country, and that is the embassy of the United States. Everything else is irrelevant. And that is, what they, that is how, they, how they operated. Now, that military regime was toppled by a massive insurrection from below of students and workers and lawyers and virtually every middle class profession came out onto the streets demanding an end to the dictatorship. This was October 68, very unfashionable 68 because no one much cared about what was going on in that country except some of us because there were more interesting things going on in Europe or so it seemed but it's the only movement of 68 which succeeded because the ones here alas failed or were limited. They didn't totally fail, but they were limited in what they achieved. In Pakistan, they toppled a military dictator. He had to leave. And I remember when that happened in March 69, 
the mood of the entire country, east and west, was joyous, absolutely joyous. And the solidarity from below was phenomenal, that when students were shot dead in West Pakistan, women students marched in the streets of East Pakistan dressed in white the color of mourning and in bare feet as a mark of respect. It's the only time both parts of the country came close to each other was in a joint combined movement against a military regime backed by the United States. And the demands were of all the movements at that time withdraw from the pacts with the West. We do not want to be part of them. Now, <clears throat> the general election which followed the toppling of that dictator, as I mentioned earlier, produced a majority of, from East Pakistan who wanted equal rights. They felt they would have been subjected to a colonial-style exploitation with some justice. And the military then attempted to crush that, and that split up the country. And subsequently, the history of the country has been a country of political experiments and then military dictatorships. The one period in the history of the new Pakistan, this country that exists now, was with when Benazir Bhutto's father, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, was leader of the People's Party with a relatively radical program and promised food, clothing, and shelter for everyone, promised drastic land reforms, ended up essentially carrying out a set of nationalizations, mainly directed against his political opponents. Uh, which were the last thing you needed at that particular time. What was needed then as it is now was land reforms to modernize the countryside and destroy the basis of support for these tiny groups of feudal landlords who controlled the country. Sindh was the worst in many ways. Punjab wasn't all that ahead, but the level of exploitation in the countryside where Bhutto himself used to boast sometimes in his cups that he exercised the droit de senior, the right of a landlord to, to sleep with any woman before her marriage as long as these are on his estates. That was the, uh, what, what happened. But he swept to power uh, and delivered very little. That is the truth. If you actually look at what happened, the, and, and the party became very corrupted while he was alive, the style authoritarian, <clears throat> the way of dealing with people demagogic, not tolerating any dissent inside the party, and he was then toppled by a military coup, again instigated by the United States. For what reason? that Bhutto had decided to build a nuclear device, there's no big dispute about that, with money from the Libyans, <clears throat> not the Saudis, which some people allege, they were not for it, or they were not allowed to be for it, but largely with uh, money from the Libyans to build a nuclear device, because India had one. Uh, and the United States warned him, Kissinger's famous warning to Bhutto, unless you desist on the nuclear question, we will make a terrible example out of you. 
He refused to desist, so they organized a military coup. He was tried by a rigged, uh, uh, on a totally fake uh, charge, uh, and hanged. So that was that. And then the worst period in the country's history, the worst period was under the Zia military dictatorship from 77 to 88. Uh, it really was. It brutalized the country's political culture. And it did something which had not been that common in Pakistan. It brought religion right to the forefront of politics. Now, while religion always existed, after all, you know, it's a Muslim country, that's the culture of the people, the religious parties had always been very tiny uh, in the support for them, as they are today, by the way. They're not that much bigger today, but the state during the Zaya years poured in money to build up these organizations <clears throat> and handed them the ministries of information and education. So all the cadres of the Islamist parties infiltrated the media, television, radio, and the universities, and their task was drive out the subversives, i.e. anyone who was secular or a tiny bit radical. And the fact that this was a campaign agreed on a global level is that Sadat in Egypt did exactly the same thing in Egypt with basically promoting the people who finally shot him dead. And in Pakistan, this was done systematically during the Zia years. All the groups which are now talked about as the uh, terrorist groups were funded, trained, created by the Zia administration with the backing of the West after the Russians invaded Afghanistan. Once the Russians came into Afghanistan, which was December 79, a year and a half after Zia took power, then Pakistan became a frontline state, central to the war not on terror, but the war against communism. All the textbooks which were used by the Mujahideen in the religious schools and the training camps, the primers, the catechisms, where were they published? They were published in the University of Nebraska where a special department for Afghan studies was created uh, to publish all this stuff. Till recently, those old uh, books were being used. And because the aim was, it was the near the tail end of the Cold War, to totally, <clears throat> to revenge. I mean, Brzezinski, uh, the uh, Carter's national security advisor, didn't even try and hide it. They got us, they hit us in Vietnam. We've suffered a massive blow in Vietnam. We're going to punish them in Afghanistan. Nothing, whatever it cost, that's had to be, had, that had to be done. And in Brzezinski's words, later we laid a bear trap. And we trapped the Russian bear. And we destroyed him. Now, they did that, it is absolutely true. But the question is that the decision of the Russians to go into Afghanistan itself was a crazy decision. Totally crazy decision. Some of us pointed that out at the time. 
saying this is completely crazy. This is not a part of the world where you can behave like this. You're going to unite every reactionary under the sun. <clears throat> and it will become a, a big uh, jihad against the communist atheist enemy, which is what the West did. You know, Robert Fisk pointed out a few years ago that they were not allowed as journalists. He was then working for the Times to refer to the mujahideen who were destroying co-educational schools, blowing them up, executing teachers. Fisk said we were observing all this, and I, in one report, described them as terrorists, and it was taken out because the Foreign Office instruction was that they were freedom fighters. <clears throat> That's what these people were. That's how they were presented. I mean, you, there are historic photographs of all these uh, Mujahideen leaders at the White House with Reagan. Reagan introducing them to the press corps and introducing them as what? These people, he said, are the equivalent of the founding fathers of our own republic. He actually said that. Certainly would have shocked Jefferson if no one else <laughs> Thatcher did exactly the same thing here. There are photographs of Margaret Thatcher with these guys in 10 Downing Street. If you look at the media coverage, totally pro. Now, you know, some of us argued at the time, I certainly did, and a few others, that you can be opposed to the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan, which I thought was totally wrong, without backing these bunch of so-and-sos, because once you do that, it's going to be very difficult to control them. But they did. The media was virtually universal in all that. I mean, they were heroes in France, in Britain, in the United States, etc. And everything that is happening now, or not everything, but virtually everything, dates back to that period in Pakistani history where the state, backed by the West, armed and created and trained these groups to create mayhem. <clears throat> and then it's difficult to pull them back once you do it. And sometimes you can't even pull them back even when you want to because they're no longer under your control. Uh, I mean, that we've seen in, you know, the Spain in the Basque country, we've seen it in Ireland. When the IRA signs a peace treaty, you have a real IRA grows up totally out of control. And a similar thing on a larger scale was uh, being carried on there. So the, 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 what the United States and backed by the West, the entire Western world, did at that time was very short-sighted. But this is what empires are. They are very short-sighted because they act in their immediate interests. Rare, very rare for an empire to think in the long term. <clears throat> it's what their immediate, or at the most their medium-term interests uh, uh, require. And when the British tried to conquer Afghanistan twice and failed, they were pretty brutal too. And all this talk from the Foreign Office, we know best how to handle them. The Americans are messing things up. I mean, let me read out to you something from how they handled things. <clears throat> when the British Empire was, uh, I'm, I'll just read these three quotes from the 19th century when Britain was fighting in that region. Here's Mr. Temple, a senior British civil servant in 1855 
sharing his opinions with his colleagues in terms and language that had been appreciated by General Custer. Now, these tribes are savages, noble savages, perhaps, and not without some virtue and generosity, but still absolutely barbarians nevertheless. In their eyes, their one great commandment is blood for blood and fire and sword for all infidels. They are very avaricious, thievish, and predatory to the last degree. The Patan, the Pashtun mother, offers prayers that her son may be a successful robber. Then there's another imperial officer writing in 1881, Mr. Ibbotson. The true Pashtun, Patan, is perhaps the most barbaric of all the races with which we are brought into contact. He is bloodthirsty, cruel, and vindictive in the highest degree. He does not know what truth or faith is. You see, only empires know what truth and faith is. No one else. It is easy to convict him out of his own mouth, etc., etc. A few years later, just to show that the Scots could be equally good at this sort of thing, we have Mr. McGregor. There is no doubt, like other Patans, they would not shrink from any falsehood, however atrocious, to gain an end. <coughs> Money could buy their services for the foulest deed. He made an interesting sociological point. The mullahs have influence only as far as the observances of religion go and are powerless in political matters. And the, but the wazids are an especially democratic and independent people. And so even their own tribal leaders have little control over them. So we got a slightly different picture from that particular uh, uh, one. But what happened in this period of the first Afghan war was that the traditional leaders of the tribes were displaced, removed, sent away, and the mullahs became all-powerful because they were the people necessary to inspire the jihad against the Russians. Uh, and that essentially is, uh, are the origins of what we discuss today. I don't know whether you heard the news. There's a BBC guy here earlier talking to me, and he's, the latest news is that the United States sent people into the Pakistan's northwest frontier province today, and 100 people have died. Is that the figure, 100? Yeah. Uh, a hundred uh, people have been killed today. So uh, September 11th marks the anniversary of an incursion. Now, what is going to happen in that country? We have the last military dictator just left a few, several weeks ago. Uh, um, he managed to have himself elected president by sacking the judiciary, which is about to question his legitimacy. Uh, again, he was solidly backed by the West. The, the, I don't know how many of you know about this, but one of the most amazing struggles that took place in Pakistan is not what is happening on the frontier regions, where you have a spillage from the Afghan war which is creating havoc. Uh, but in the country as a whole, a country of 190 million people, you had a judge and a group of judges in the Supreme Court who started handing out decisions which favored the poor. That has never happened in Pakistan's history. A poor woman would go to the judge with a very you know, low-priced lawyer, 
the judge would look at the petition and say there seems to be something here. Investigate. And the Chief Justice Iftikhar Chaudhry became a hero in Pakistan, a total hero, because the judiciary had never operated like this in the country uh, uh, before. And so, of course, the establishment was worried, and the classic case came which turned the West against this judge that a woman appealed to the judge saying her son had been disappeared several months ago. She had no idea where she was. She was a poor woman with very little money. And she said, I just want to know where my son is. And the judge ordered the head of the Federal Intelligence Agency to the Supreme Court and said to him, where is so-and-so? Because we have a case. His mother has brought a case forward. Where is he? And the head of the Federal Intelligence Agency said, we do not know. And the Chief Justice of the Pakistan Supreme Court said, unless you produce him before this court within 48 hours, you will go to prison. Now, a judge talking like that to the head of a country's intelligence agency is certainly unknown in Pakistan, but I don't think it's known anywhere else either. <laughs> Couldn't imagine the law lords talking like that to the intelligence chiefs in this country who had lied through their teeth to drag the country into a war. Can't imagine it. It happened in Pakistan. And as a result of this, the judges, for the first time ever, became popular figures. And the government sacked the chief justice the first time, and it triggered off a movement without precedent, to my knowledge, in almost any country, a mass movement to restore the chief justice back to the Supreme Court. Begun by lawyers, it attracted students, it attracted poor people, and it became a mass movement. And finally, the government had to move back. The uh, Supreme Court took, you know, was allowed to decide on the matter. The chief justice went back. Then General Musharraf, who the United States didn't want to lose, triggered off another crisis by declaring a state of emergency because his legitimacy as president was before the Supreme Court and he was fearful. And this emergency, he sacked the judges, arrested lots of people. And then a new movement began. And that movement finally resulted in I mean, uh, uh, the United States trying to do something to uh, create a more stable situation, and they did what I describe in this book and, and initially in a piece for the London Review books as a forced arranged marriage between Benazir Bhutto and the general. Uh, and these, uh, this is a very dangerous enterprise at the best of times, to force people into a marriage, but obviously with their sort of relative consent, otherwise it wouldn't have happened. Uh, Benazir Bhutto, as you know, was assassinated, and the general is now out of power, so that particular thing didn't work out. But we now have a situation where another tragedy in Pakistan's history, that Benazir left behind a will and testament in which she said that her son should inherit the party. Uh, 
I don't think this could be, I mean, a, a sort of will just written like that would be accepted by most parties in the world. The Pakistan People's Party, which was a neutered organization anyway, decided to accept this. And the will, uh, a codicil to the will, said that till the son came of age, her husband, Asif Ali Zardari, would be the prince regent and run the party in the country. This too was accepted by the Pakistan People's Party leadership, amongst whom are intelligent human beings. It's not that it's a party of total idiots. <laughs> there are some people there who can think, and they accepted it. They accepted it. So we now have a situation where Asif Sardari, the most corrupt politician even in Pakistan's checkered history, is the president of the country elected indirectly. Because if there had been a direct election for the presidency, he wouldn't have got anywhere. His standing is at 14%. Uh, <clears throat> uh, it's difficult to think of someone more unpopular than Gordon Brown, but he is. <laughs> so he's now president of the country. The US has approved the deal. Finally, there's a big faction fight within the American administration with Cheney's office pushing for a deal with Zardari in the State Department trying to keep Musharraf in power till Bush leaves office, which they couldn't maintain. So we now have Zardari in power. The question now is this. Did Zardari agree with, the, uh, with his American backers uh, that they could come into the country whenever they wanted, chasing terrorists, so-called. I mean, the first people killed a few weeks ago, 20 women and children, who even the United States couldn't describe as terrorists. Uh, but that is the situation now. And it's a very critical situation in the country with today's strike for the following reasons, that the bulk of the population, as successive opinion polls have showed, are not in favor of the Western presence in the region. They don't like it. The war in Afghanistan has gone badly wrong, very badly wrong. It's corrupt. It's brutal. And the alternatives are not much better, but people at least say that many people especially amongst the poorer social layers of Afghan society, say, let's get the foreigners out. Uh, and so you've seen a big growth of strikes against the occupation forces by what the you know, British experts are calling the neo-Taliban, the new Taliban, which is a more spruced up organization. It has its media offices and uh, spin doctors and all that, unlike the old ones who were sort of very crude on these matters. Uh, so this is essentially what is going on. And in desperation, because the war in Afghanistan is going badly, the West is doing what it always did. The reason the war in South Vietnam is going badly is because of the North Vietnamese. So you bomb North Vietnam. Uh, the reason Iraq is going badly is because of Iran, so you threaten to bomb Iran. They haven't dared do it because that would finish them off completely, but they threaten it because they cannot, it's difficult for them to expect, accept that what they have done and the way they have operated is what's created the problems. The Russians couldn't accept it and now the Americans can't.
and on that subject, I will just make a reference to uh, a very fine novel by Nadeem Aslam, The Wasted Vigil on Afghanistan, which has just been published, and which will give people who are interested a real flavor of what that country is and the atrocities to which it's been subjected by all sides. I mean, heaven knows no country deserves or needs this. But it's happened, and it's carrying on to this day. I mean, torture is carried out on a random basis in the same prisons which the Russians used when they were there, and which were the, you know, descriptions of horror in these prisons at the time. Well, in the same prisons, torture is being carried out. And I wouldn't be surprised now, given what's going on, if some of the same people were helping to carry it out. Certainly, given the privatization of war, it is a fact that dozens of Soviet helicopter pilots who knew the terrain well have been hired by the NATO forces and are actually being used to go and uh, attack villages. That's what's going on. Now, you do this and create, whether you like it or not, a a struggle. And then you blame the neighboring country for it uh, because it makes it easier. It's someone else. It's not us. And the other related matter to this is I did think, you know, I normally loathe conspiracy theories, but has this incursion into Pakistan got something to do with the election campaign of the Republicans mean that it would sort of, they're at war again, this is a serious situation, Uh, might it not help to put McCain and uh, the wonderful Sarah Palin uh, into the White House, or who knows what is going on, but it doesn't make sense, and there, there was for the last year which I describe in this book, a big debate going on within the US establishment on this question to go into Pakistan or not. And quite a few senior people, including General Zinni, Richard Armitage, uh, not a great friend, but uh, nonetheless sensible on this, saying don't do it. Don't do it because you're going to create a bigger crisis than you'll be able to deal with. So I think the next weeks and months are going to be very critical in Pakistan. If they killed 100 people there today, uh, this is going to go on. There are going to be, the within the army, the, yesterday, uh, it wasn't Keani, I can't remember which general it was, announced that if the Americans send troops, then we will resist them. Now, this is the uh, general belonging to an army of a country which is your closest ally in the war against terror in that region, saying to you, if you... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Come again in force, we will fight you. The impact of this is going to be horrific. And you know, this is the mistake which is made time and time again that people lose sight of what they said the reasons they gave for fighting the war. American intelligence reports over the last five years have made it clear that the invasion of Iraq has increased the attraction for young Muslims in that region and others towards terrorist groups. All the reports provided in Britain by intelligence and foreign office think tanks said that the reason for July the 7th was not Muslims going crazy or it's inherent in their genes but the war on Iraq. They actually wrote it. Now if the intelligence agencies know this, why the hell can't the political leaders of the Western world understand that they're playing with fire? And you know, destabilizing Pakistan so it runs out of control. I mean, I have never accepted that the jihadis, small groups of uh, extremists, were ever on the verge of seizing power in Pakistan and getting the nuclear facility, which is the sort of nightmare scenario of some uh, Western commentators. I mean, it's like a horror movie, you know, like sort of aliens are coming and are going to be taken over. It's a political version of that. But it's not the case. It can't happen. The Pakistan military is half a million strong. The only way it could happen is if the Pakistani military wanted it to happen. Then it would happen. But they don't want it to happen, for obvious reasons, at the moment. But carry on provoking them, and who knows what will happen. You know, in Pakistan, when what is not known is that more Pakistani soldiers have died in the war on the border provinces than NATO troops. Pakistan has lost several thousand. They're paid for it, their families are paid for it. CENTCOM, the high command of CENTCOM, receives an invoice from the Pakistan army, which it pays up on time. So money exchanges hands. And, but it's, this war waged by Pakistan to help NATO is incredibly unpopular because they too kill innocents. When you destroy a whole village, naturally, you, you antagonize people. And increasingly now, junior officers are refusing to serve a second round of duty. Many are accepting early retirement because they're saying, you know, we're killing our own people. We don't want to do that. So it's an incredibly um, a grim situation uh, in, in Pakistan. And there doesn't seem to be, you know, there's no, the, the movement to restore the judges, a constitutional mass movement was the high point of that country's politics in recent years. But at the moment, things are grim. It's a country trapped between the military and political corruption. And there's no alternative that exists in any shape or form uh, at the present time. Now, when I say this sometimes to friends here, they say, well, you know, there are parts of Europe which feel the same. Well, it's not the same. I mean, I know what they mean, that between New Labour and the Tories, there's, that's true, but there is still a space and things are happening. 
But in Pakistan, space is limited and it's sort of very constricted. So you don't have the creation of parties, giant social movements uh, um, at, at the moment. And with the war on Afghanistan now leaking and spilling badly in the United States going into that country for reasons which remain incomprehensible unless they are to help the Republicans uh, and create a new mini-war situation uh, and think that that way they'll pull it off, which would be very crude, but they are capable of it. But if there are other reasons, then it's very difficult to comprehend what these are. I mean, in reality, what requires doing in Afghanistan, and I'll end on this, is what that country desperately needs is at least 20 years of peace, just for people to recover psychologically. They don't even particularly care, the Afghans now, whether they will have the trappings of democracy. They don't want war, they don't want torture, they don't want foreign occupation. And many of them don't want to return to the savagery of the Taliban and the stupidity of the Taliban and the particular way in which they, they impose that religion. Now, there is a way out, in my opinion, and the way out is for a regional solution to the problem. And a regional solution is not easy, but it would involve the agreement of the Indians, who are a major player in the region, Pakistan, Iran, Russia. These are four crucial players who could deliver 10 to 20 years of peace and genuine social reconstruction. The Pakistanis could do it by saying to the, their supporters and their, uh, in the Taliban, you have to be part of a national government. There is no way you will be permitted to exercise power alone. The Iranians are very influential in Herat. The uh, 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 Russians are influential in the north. Uh, with those groups, so they, they, but they would have to guarantee it, and they would have to guarantee it socially, i.e. genuine social reconstruction in that country which the West has been incapable of doing, incapable of doing. Even the Russians were marginally better than the West on that. When they, but that is the only way I think it can happen because the, the regional powers will be more trusted in that country uh, than the uh, NATO uh, uh, occupies, and then we m might have some peace. And then that might also create a slightly uh, different situation uh, in Pakistan itself. Thank you. Mr. Ali, thank you for that very interesting uh, talk. You, you said that um, two of the legacies from the imperial time were the civil service and the military. And I was just wondering if you'd like to comment on the role, um, either for good or bad, played by some of the Christian educational establishments. Uh, I was thinking particularly of um, the Jesuits, uh, some of the Roman Catholic nuns who I understood uh, to have featured quite strongly uh, in that infrastructure. And would you like to sort of, uh, you know, comment on that? I mean, A, their, their role in that legacy and possibly their, 
their role today when we very often sort of have a pejorative attitude? Well, their role was very minor because you'll get that if you... Let me give you the following statistic. After 180 years of rule when the British finally left India, 90% of the country was illiterate. 90%. So all the nostalgia which is sometimes evinced in this country, which, you know, uh, in literary circles and others, uh, for all that, didn't, you know, it applied to a very tiny layer. The British essentially ruled India by co-opting a native ruling class and without whom it would have been very difficult for them to rule the country because at the height of the British military presence there were never more than 36,000 English soldiers, British soldiers in India. And for such a large subcontinent, it's an astonishing figure. So they couldn't have done it unless it created uh, a class of military and political collaborators. And one of the things these people, and of course the instincts of the imperial bureaucracy themselves demanded, was that don't educate people, because the minute you educate them, they'll demand freedom. Because they will read, they will no longer be dependent on you. So unlike other parts of the world, like Australia and New Zealand, which were largely settlers, uh, in, in a country the size of India, you couldn't have settlements like that. But on the other hand, you kept people. So the nuns and the Jesuits, etc., cetera, uh, did educate a limited number of people, but very, very tiny by comparison. What's more interesting is the, um, I mean, I went to a Catholic school in Lahore. Uh, and I, it's not one of my fondest memories, I have to be, to, to, to tell you that. Uh, there were one or two good teachers, but by and large, as many who have been to schools where the Catholic brothers have been the bosses, both in India, Pakistan, or in Ireland, or in other parts of the world, uh, is that when rationality failed, the, they often resorted to violence. And the amount of corporal punishment in these schools was quite astonishing, actually. Uh, but uh, so it's not that they didn't try and do some good. They did, but it was for a very limited, small uh, number of people. And this is still, I didn't mention this, but a big problem in Pakistan today is education. You have a massive class divide on education. Education, the real education of the people, is ignored. The statistics lie. They talk about so many schools, but these are buildings, often shells. They talk about so many teachers, often people on the payroll who don't go and teach at all. And so you have the upper classes and the middle classes, or sections of the middle classes, not all the middle classes catered for, but for the bulk of the people, the education system has been a total disaster. India is better than that, uh, uh, than Pakistan on that. I just want to give you one story, which actually is a, a, a friend of mine, an acquaintance of mine, very wealthy, had a chauffeur whose daughter he felt was incredibly intelligent, very sharp and bright, eight, nine-year-old kid. And he would see her and talk to her, and he said to his chauffeur, where is she being educated? 
And the chauffeur said, well, no way, I can't afford to. And he said, I'll pay for her to be educated, and I'll make sure she gets the best education. So he went to one of the top private schools in Lahore, owned by a leading family who's a woman whose husband was the country's foreign minister for a while. I mean, you know, people at the top. Uh, you'd have thought all they'd be interested in was money. He took his daughter to this school, and they said, fine, because they recognized him. He said, how much is the fee? Should I give you a check for five years in advance so you don't have to bother me? Everything went through till the principal of the school asked for the kid's name. And it wasn't the name of the guy who was signing the check. So she said, oh, she's not your daughter. He said, no, no, but I'm paying for her. And he said, uh, and the, the, the principal said, whose daughter is she? And he said, she's my chauffeur's daughter. And they said, we're sorry, we can't take her into the school. These are fee-paying schools on which fees should be the only things, if that. you know, it's a, So they wouldn't take her. So he went straight to the Jesus and Mary convent and told the, uh, the principal there, none, what had happened. And they said, we will take her and educate her, and we will take your money as well, <laughs> and very happily. And it happened, and he then donated a lot of money to the convent to create a special new block because he was so impressed. But that is the scale of the problem we confront in this country. You know, I often try and think, is there a more callous and unfeeling ruling elite in other parts of the world? And it's difficult. There are, there are some. But it's difficult to find one exactly uh, like these guys. They're just beyond belief. Thank you very much. I was very encouraged to hear your account of the um, judges and, and lawyers standing up in the way that they have. Is it possible that this group of people can perhaps break into the um, political elite in Pakistan and perhaps form a more credible and powerful political force? Well, we all hope for that, but it is not easy to break into this uh, elite because, you know, in, in many parts of the world now, not just in Pakistan, money and power go together. Um, there are people with money who buy their way into politics and there are people who go into politics to make money. So there's this symbiosis between wealth and power, which to a much, much greater extent now than there uh, was before, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, and the way politics is controlled in that country, it is not easy. But, you know, I, in one of the pieces I wrote recently, said that if politicians in that country had genuine foresight, they would have offered the Chief Justice, if they're not going to give him back the Supreme Court, they should have offered him the presidency of the country. That certainly would have united people. And it would have, it would have been the only thing to give the people some hope. But the West didn't like him for reasons I pointed out. I mean, it was the most undercovered struggle in, in recent years because Pakistan and Musharraf were friendly, were friendly to the West. Just imagine if this struggle to reinstate the judiciary had been taking place in a country the West doesn't like, if a government there had behaved like this, in Venezuela, for instance. All hell would have broken loose. Look what's going on. But because it was Pakistan, 
this was ignored. But, you know, we live in hope. I mean, I, my talk hasn't been very uplifting because I didn't want to sort of build false illusions, but to give a fairly realistic account of what is going on in that country because I think one has to be realistic. Uh, but nonetheless, it is not totally impossible that things can happen. The one thing that does happen often in Pakistan is surprises, like the judges' movement, like the insurrection that toppled a military dictatorship in 68-69. No one predicted that. And there are, there is an unpredictability in that country which does, uh, does offer hope. Hi. Um, I was wondering uh, if you thought about your thoughts on the recent victory of the ANP in the uh, NWFP region of Pakistan, or whether yeah. you thought that maybe this was, you talk about a lack of hope, and whether this maybe is, you know, the possible way forward, or something that maybe could be a positive movement of, in yeah. Pakistan. Well, look, um, I, I didn't have time to talk about everything, but the, the what I was going to say, and then I got uh, sidetracked by something else, after I read those bits out to you of what British civil servants wrote about the Pashtuns, what I was going to say is that was the one area in India before the partition of the subcontinent where you had a gigantic non-violent movement. The Pashtuns of the northwest frontier province regarded as barbarians, violent, the founder of what is now the ANP, but which was called Servants of God, actually. It was a big, big social movement of peasants. And he was, Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan was known as the Frontier Gandhi because he said to the Pashtuns of his province, we will not be able to defeat the British with arms. They are stronger than us. We can't do it. But we will defeat them by mass mobilizations Nonviolent uh, struggles, and he won a large majority of that country, of that province, to him. And the only way, and do you know something else? That province, the Northwest Frontier Province, these people, the nonviolent people, joined the Congress Party. They were all Muslims. They joined the Indian Congress and were elected twice. And they ran the government before. Uh, partition took place. And the reason uh, they did it was because of the social work they had done and how they had educated the peasants. They did political work in the proper uh, sense of the word, which is why I hate stereotypes attached to any ethnicity. X is violent, B is cruel, C is cunning, D is this. Nonsense. It depends on how people work, how people live, who they relate to. What happens to them at critical moments? There's an awful massacre in the Storytellers' Bazaar, the Kisahani Bazaar in Peshawar, carried out by the British to try and crush this movement, which they hated. And, uh, you know, dozens of people were killed. But they still refused to take up arms, and they won mass support. These are the Pathans described as barbarians, uh, uh, etc. So it just goes to show that there's no such thing as a stereotype. But to answer your question, the ANP today is a pale, pale shadow, if that, of what this party used to be. It's, 
you know, it lost power the first time to the religious groups because of corruption. A lot of their people were busy making money. There was a great deal of corruption. They've now defeated the religious parties and come back, but they're negotiating with Zardari. They elected him president. Today's news from Pakistan is that they're saying that unless they get certain key ministries in the national government, they will withdraw their support again. So it's maneuvering in party politics as... Uh, as usual, but it does go. It does prove one point that the stranglehold of the religious parties, even in the frontier province, isn't what it's claimed to be. That's very important to understand. If these people are let them down, God knows where people will turn to. So it's a it's a real it's a critical situation and quite depressing at the moment. Thank you. Ah. Hi. Um. There was an interview with John McCain in last week's Time magazine, and they asked him what he thought the most dangerous country in the world was. Pakistan. And he said Pakistan. Yeah. Um, now that Zadari's in power, do you think that he will actually allow his son to perhaps become the heir one day? Well, I mean, you know, McCain would have been more... Uh, it would have been cleverer, but that's expecting too much. If he'd said, uh, you know, Zardari was the most dangerous person in the country, <laughs> to call the country dangerous. I think Zardari's done a deal with them, like his wife did when she went back. Zardari's done a deal with them, and the one thing they've been trying to push in these deals is precisely for a green light to come in and out of the country when they want. I mean, about, again, I quote this memorandum they sent to the Pakistani Ministry of Defense, uh, which had six points. I can't remember them all, but essentially saying to the Pakistani military, we need this from you. It's just about a year and a half ago, I think. Uh, and these demands were that American soldiers can come in and out of the country when they want. They don't require passports or visas or anything like that. That when they come into the country, they can't be arrested or charged with any crime. The, it's the same deal they have with the Japanese, but in Japan they were an occupying power and they still have military bases there. Pakistan is nominally a sovereign state. And so the, the, the Ministry of Defense said, no, you can't have this. I mean, if that deal had been done, then it would have been, you know, they would have come and gone. But that was turned down, so they had to go through other sources, and one assumes, you know, there's, it's not come out as yet, though it probably will, the, that this is the deal they've, uh, they've done with uh, Zardari. But if this comes out, he won't last too long. I mean, that's just a fact. It will become a, a core celeb, a big scandal in the country. Um, you referred to how religion has been really rammed down the country's throat since General Zia was in power. So considering that, how should progressives fight for women's rights and social change in Pakistan? I mean, um, things like the Hudud laws and the blasphemy laws. And in particular, do you, what do you think of the, as a secularist and also someone who's written about the need for reform within Islam, what do you think of the notion of Islamic feminism? I mean, do you think it's fighting the mullahs on their own turf, or is it just going to strengthen the conservatives in the end? Well, you know, this is, uh, one could sort of talk about this for a long time, but I'll be very brief. I mean, my, in my opinion, the big mistake, and not a sort of totally unconscious one, Benazir Bhutto was in part 
on two occasions in Pakistan. On the first occasion, admittedly, she was hemmed in by the military and a very savage bureaucrat who was president, and she couldn't do anything. But the second time, she had a majority. She could have done anything. And a number of us said to her, I mean, I personally said this to her on both occasions, if you don't have the money to push through any real social reforms, at least offer people something. Repeal all the ordinances of the Zia period, the Hadood ordinance, the restrictions on the rights of women, that she could have done. And of course the mullahs would have screamed blue murder, but then this is what politics is about. You fight. And you go campaigning, and you say, this is why we're doing it. Our country was never like this before. But she didn't do that. That was a, a missed opportunity. And Nawaz Sharif is not in favor of any of that anyway. So, But I think that's what people should fight for. And there was a women's movement in Pakistan in the worst times, during the Zia years, the Women's Action Forum wasn't a mass movement, but it was quite an impressive movement. And women used to come out and demonstrate against these ordinances. So this notion that all women in Pakistan, you know, oppress and can't do anything is nonsense. They come out. Um, and they, they've come out against price increases only recently. Working class women have marched in several cities against uh, price increases. Again, I don't want to exaggerate, not in large numbers, but people know uh, <clears throat> what has to be done. I mean, when I, the last time I was, when I was doing some research on this book and I was in Karachi and I went and spent a day with the fishing family, the fisher folk, I mean, they live in the grimmest poverty. And, you know, you talked and the women were the most active in that community, really active and ferociously so. And, of course, you talk to them and they describe the conditions in which they live and you say, and I asked, you know, about four of them who I interviewed. Uh, it's quite interesting, and not together in different times during that day. Apart from raising obvious social issues, water, running water, electricity, etc. I said, but what would you really like? So let's suppose you get that. That's not enough. And all of them said we would like our children to receive a good education. That really is a universal demand. And not just that, a number of people in Lahore, again from poor families, said to me, why shouldn't our children learn English as a second language? I said, very good question. Why shouldn't they? Uh, why should English just be the preserve of a tiny elite? I mean, in Malaysia, a country not all that much richer than Pakistan, the better managed, uh, English is compulsory. Every single citizen learns Malay and Chinese or, you know, whatever is their main language and English so that you don't have to be wealthy to get a further education or read books or go into science, etc. Um, what was the other thing you said? Should women be... Well, look, I don't care what women call themselves, whether it's Islamic feminists or secular feminists, but they have to struggle because that's the only way you win when people struggle for their own rights. That's what we learned, have learned through history. It's not going to be delivered uh, from on top. Hi, Tariq. Um, I will take issue with your lack of alternative that you mentioned. Um, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> um, very briefly, I mean, the Long March, which I'm sure most people heard of, there were at least, I mean, probably half a million people. And uh, during the emergency, there so many groups have sprung up, and they continue today. 
I don't want to go on. I'll just mention that we've merely swapped Go Musharraf Go with No Zaldari No. So, and there are groups across the country. Um, and at least from my subjective experience, the alternative in Pakistan is far greater and far more organized than what I've seen in Europe. But, you know, that's very subjective. But my question is, how would you, how, what would you suggest, um, how should Pakistanis deal with the Pakistani Taliban? What would you recommend, if not military operations? Well, look, I don't, you know, of course I don't deny that there have been these movements. I've been talking about them. The question is not that you have movements on one issue or the other, which we have had. I mean, I haven't had time to mention one of the most impressive movements, the struggle of the peasants living on military farms to prevent these farms from being taken over and privatized. And the interesting thing about that particular struggle, which is really fascinating to understand the sociology of part of that country is that these are military farms which were created during the days of the British Empire to produce food, dairy products for the military. And they were national farms and the peasants who were taken to work on these farms were told that after 90 years the land would become theirs. And when the 90 years were up, they demanded the land from the military and they didn't get it. The military tried to offer them short-term contracts with lots of money to get them off the farms so they could sell them to agribusinesses. That's essentially, and the peasants refused to quit. But the interesting thing is that half the peasants, Punjabi peasants in Okara and that district who were fighting were Christians, of Christian origin. And the unity of the Muslim and Christian peasants was astonishing. And when I interviewed them, I said, where did you meet? They said, you know, one week we used to have our political meeting in the mosque, and the second week in a little church, because we had no other public buildings, so we used these spaces. And, that, and they resisted, they fought, and once again, women, Christian and Muslim women, peasant women, played in a phenomenal role and the military wasn't able to defeat them. It's an amazing struggle, which I wrote about at length when it was going on, and I pleaded, I really did plead, with various senior television producers here and in the States, saying, why don't you go and cover this struggle? It's a country you say is totally riven apart by religion. Here you have something different people of two different religions fighting for common goals. But I said, did you even know that there were Christians in Pakistan? No one took it up. I think some indie, indie film people made short documentary. So it's not a question that these movements don't happen, they don't erupt, they don't exist. The question is, how do you bring them together with what ideology to challenge the army, and not just the army, but the corruption of the political parties. Now, it's not an easy question. There are no simple answers. You know, 20, 30 years ago, I would have given you a simple pat answer, which may or may not have turned out to be good. But we knew. But those certainties are not there any longer. So if I'm totally honest, I will say to you, I do not know exactly the mechanism by which we can bring these groups together. I feel it has to be political, it has to have a, a social program, and it has to break with the traditional style of Pakistani politics and Pakistani political parties. Uh, and it has to involve in it 
people who on the basis of what they think and on the basis of what they want and not on the basis of what they own. And it has to be self-financing. That's what we need. And hopefully it will happen. Two really quick things. One, I, I just thought I'd mention the fact that having the background in that area, that the Patans are actually more um, followers of the actual Patan code as opposed to the religion, which I think you've already mentioned anyway. And that's more to do with tradition and family loyalties and hospitality. And that's why a lot of the Afghans seem to be um, uh, seem to be supported by them. But what I wonder, what I actually wanted to ask you, Mr. Ali, what, don't you think that they are part of the solution as opposed to part of the problem, which is the way the Americans seem to be treating them at the moment? I.e., if they were actually brought into the fold and asked for their help, don't you think they would actually, you know, in, improve the uh, the position in Afghanistan at the moment? Um, and the other thing I just on on um, Pakistan as a whole, I think education definitely is sort of the key. But what do you think is the prospect of the country getting more education? Because as far as I can see, it's more it's the sort of corruption seems to get in the way every time. Well, look, uh, briefly on the first, yeah, I'm in favor of bringing everyone into the fold, talking to people. That goes without saying on education. Here, you know, uh, the West, I have to say this, has been very short-sighted, extremely short-sighted, both in Afghanistan and even more so in Pakistan. This is a country which is virtually run by the American embassy for the last 50 to 60 years. Why has no one stressed and understood to impose on this elite some norms of saying you've got to educate your people? No one would be opposed to that. I mean, the, the religious groups might complain that they order, but ultimately everyone wants their uh, kids educated, including in some of what are considered the more backward areas. My sister is an educationalist and works on a voluntary basis and helped raise money to build girls' schools in some remote villages. And she said when it's done like that, she's given me detailed descriptions she said, you go into a family and talk. All the mothers want their daughters educated. It's not the case that they don't. She said, sometimes the guys are quite, you know, what, what will they learn? But if you say it's a girls only school, they want it. Uh, what you need in Pakistan is, I would say, 10 big teaching universities whose function is only to educate people how to teach because teachers don't spring out of anywhere. And they have got to be people from the locality. And you have to tell them to teach properly. I mean, you know, it's, it's, a, it's the philosophy of teaching, uh, which is absolutely crucial, and not teaching by rote, teaching people to learn things by heart, which is a 19th century or early 20th century way of teaching, which is never effective, but in our country now, it's totally counterproductive. Kids learn absolutely nothing. I mean, the books in the core curriculum in Pakistan are a total disgrace, total disgrace. And then people are surprised, you know, why people aren't moving. Pakistan isn't producing more scientists, more mathematicians, etc., etc. That's the reason. That's what needs to be done. But this obsession with war and occupation and terror actually militates against doing anything which would really... Uh, Help, uh, help that country. 
thank you. Um, I was going to ask, while we're talking about education, uh, if you could say something about madrasas and um, the stigma yeah. that's uh, attached to it in this country and the attempts to modernize it. Well, look, I think you can't modernize them. I think you have to create an alternative education system. What is a madrasa? I mean, they just mean school, really, but in the way it's described, it's become a religious school. These schools were created during the first Afghan war. It's the University of Nebraska vision. Uh, they produced the textbooks. Uh, they, you know, they even trained some teachers, I'm told. Uh, that's what they did. But the question for me, which is more interesting, is this. Why do people send their kids there? I promise you, they don't send their kids there to learn that calf is for Kalashnikov, which is what these primers say, by the way, or Jim is for jihad. That's not why they send them. If you go, you know, the Jesuits in the old days would go into a house and say, give us the boy and we will show you the man. That was the Jesuit educational principle. And they educated these kids in Jesuit schools all over the world. The people in charge of education in the madrasas would say, by and large, uh, give us the boy and we will show you a fighter because all this was done at the time of the war against the Russians. So the function of the madrasas became to produce a layer who were unquestioning, obedient, did what they were told, and prepared to give up their lives. This was the core of the Taliban. They were created in these madrasas. Children, in many cases of Afghan refugees, taught like this because your country is this, your country has been attacked by infidels and atheists and all this sort of stuff. So they were taught that. But after the Afghan thing ended, the madrasas still continued. I remember very vividly, many years ago, when my father died in 95, the chief minister of the frontier province came to pay condolences at our house and he was talking to me and he said, do you know how many madrasas there are in, in my province alone? Uh, he gave me a horrific figure and he said, I go on my knees before our government and say, do something because these are explosive. These are totally explosive and they're going to implode in the country, but no one listens. Well, it happens. But the question is, the real question for me is, why do people give their kids? You go into a household which has six or seven kids, and a mullah will go, or a non-mullah will go, and say, give us your kid, we'll feed him, we'll clothe him, we'll give him an education and we look after him for the next seven, eight years. Poor people, desperate, say, okay, here's the kid, have him. Have him. And these kids go. And they remain loyal in some cases to their teachers. I mean, the guy producing suicide bombers in Swat is one such teacher who was teaching in a madrasa, who has a list, and the kid is told, tomorrow you have to do this and you will go to heaven. And his family, if his family tries to stop it, they are repressed. That is what happens. They are not all extreme like that. But the point is that the way to deal with it is not through excessive moralizing, but to create an alternative system so that a family doesn't feel the need 
to offer one of its child to these madrasas. That is the way to do it, and it's the only organic way in which to break the stranglehold of the mullahs on the educational system in that country. If you do it like that, you're not punishing anyone. You're not saying to them, we're going to kill you, we're going to bomb you. You're just going to say, this is the way our children in this country are going to be educated. And you know, people have often remarked on the desperation on the part of kids to learn. And people don't have money to get an education. So the state has to provide an education system. You know, it's old-fashioned, I know, to say this in a, in a world of privatization, though this world, I have to say, is changing rapidly when Bush nationalizes two large mortgage companies. <laughs> Something new labor is still too frightened to even talk about. But anyway, uh, that's what we need, a state education system. Thank you. It's a very silly, simple question. What it would be like to go to holiday in Pakistan? The background of the question is that uh, my Sunni friend Ijaz has been rejected by the family of a lady for marriage, and he's very unhappy about it, and he wants a holiday. So we could go together to Pakistan if I pay the fare. <laughs> now, whether he'd look after me when I was there, I don't know, but I think he would. What? Well, from what you're saying, I, I, I think you've taken Pakistan me so much by surprise that the first part of your, <laughs> the first part of your question, eluded my ears. <laughs> what would it be like to go to Pakistan for a holiday with oh. Ijaz? Ah, uh, wonderful. Uh, absolutely wonderful. It's an incredibly beautiful country, and there are large tracts of it, and people are always stunned, and, peop and, and you will find a great deal of uh, hospitality. Only don't dress, only don't take uh, Stars and Stripes underwear with you. <laughs> Even that won't matter in some parts, but you know, that's what it is. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.